pretend that guy is not here. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. So you're back working full time, which is obviously affecting your knife making time, which is not the best thing, not best thing for you and uh, the best thing for a lot of guys that uh, obviously follow you quite um, quite a lot, especially with your knowledge that you give out to people. Um, that was one of the things we put on the promo was if ever you've followed a um, work in progress from Ian Stewart and a how-to from Ian Stewart, then you might want to tune in. If we do a little bit of a background, Ian, um, what's, what's your history in terms of knife making? When did you get started in uh, making knives as a, as a hobby? About four, a bit over four years ago, I think, Kev, I, I probably met you at the first Canberra show that I ever went to. Um, I probably only started making knives about eight weeks before I showed them at the first Canberra show that I went. Um, that same year, I decided I'd have a crack at knife making and I did a course, I think it was in February the same year, given that the Canberra show was at the end of the year. I went up and, and did a course with... Um, <laughs> he's now known as my brother from another mother, Keith Flutter. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Uncle Keith. <laughs> Uncle Keith. He, um, he sort of lit the wick for me. I My background in knives probably emanated from my background in axes. I did, um, I used to make competition racing axes for 23 years prior to um, making my first knife. And um, that sort of gave me a bit of an indication about steel and, um, and its uses. And if you think about 16, 18 stone blokes hitting a, a lump of wood in the middle of the um, arena, arena at um, Sydney Royal Easter Show, well, that's the arena that I used to play in steel-wise. And I learned a little bit about W2, um, how good it was as a basic material from axe-making. And then um, when I retired, I was wondering about what I might be able to do to sort of fill that void in hobbies. I still do a few axes, um, yeah. but it was pretty easy to convert over to uh, knife making. I went and did a, a course with Keith and I've got to honestly say he lit the wick for me. I think I actually wrote that on the back of his door. Um, he lit the wick and then the rest is history. Um, so, yeah, four, it'll be five years this year that I yeah. made my first my, my first knife. So, um, yeah, it's been quite an epic journey. Yeah, time flies, though, doesn't it? I was actually thinking about you the other day because uh, I was sitting down, had the TV on, and it was the, um, the still wood things going on with our chopping stuff. And I was thinking about you with that. And yeah. uh, now you, you, as you do with your humble self, you briefly mentioned about the ax sort of side of things, but I've seen some of the axes and we've sat down and had a big chat about things. Mm. Um, and in that environment at that level that those guys are competing, it, it is a, you know, excuse the pun, but it's a cutthroat industry with what they're doing and they can be seconds apart from, you know, obtaining that first place or 
being obscure. If, if you're not any good there, they'll give you the chop quick as. Yeah. So no, a part of that, I guess, leading to that is um, when you move that into knife making, your knowledge of the geometry required to do high-performance axes in competition axe heads, really that's where some of that transition goes into understanding how to get a performance uh, knife working as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's exactly right. And um, if you think about, like, still timber sports and you think about the arena at the Sydney Royal Easter Show, um, it's kind of the top of the tree from the perspective of the more world titles are won at the Sydney Royal Easter Show than they are anywhere. Um, I've competed X-Wise in America and um, places like that. I've competed at Sydney a lot myself, but I'm I'm nowhere near the, the size of those blokes and whatever. But from the perspective of axe making, I can proudly say that I... Um, I used to sponsor a, a young bloke from New Zealand and, and one of my axes that I made him won a world title. So, yeah, it's quite an amazing thing to be able to make something that succeeds at that level. Um, cause oh, yeah, absolutely. One mistake I, I had and, the pleasure of getting one of your axe heads to have a little bit of a play around with <laughs> oh, way back when. Now this is actually years ago, trying to get That's a hold right. on to the bloody I, thing. I still and, haven't finished it. No, no. <laughs> it took it took three years to get the bloody thing heat treated, um, and I still don't know whether it worked out or not because it's there virtually impossible to hardness test because of the geometry on the bloody things. That's but right. Yeah, it's having having held that they're not just your Bunnings log splitter. They're not just your decent quality axe. These things are like primo. Like yeah. for me. Yeah, that's it. For me to sort of think about putting a handle on that axes. and taking it camping with me, you know, I'd, I'd probably end up doing more damage to me than any log or tree I could cut down. But mm. you can see, like I said, that that whole thought process that goes into basically, like I said, creating the sports car of the axe world. Mm. Yeah, no, it's quite amazing. And um, I guess one, one, I'll keep making axes until I can get a good hum on. On one because yeah. <laughs> they're, they're W two, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I have my own brand of axe that I had made many years ago. I've still got a heap of them. They're called the Stuart Racing Axe. They're all yep. made from W two. So I'll succeed in axe making when I get a good harm on on one of those yeah, axes. Right. So I'll be looking for a bit well, of a yeah, yeah. Put my order down. Put my order down before everyone races to buy one. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to come down and do a. Um, I'll come visit you one time and we'll we'll do a weekend of just trying to get a homon on an axe head. Yeah, no, please do. I'd, I'd enjoy that. And we'll get we'll get my good friend um, the um, the inevitable and the uh, much revered Mike Peterson down. I was going um, to get Mike over. Yeah, for sure. Over, yeah, that that will really make it an interesting <laughs> weekend. So. Oh. Yeah. Uh, no offence to Mike, but I would suggest that that would be more like an episode of the Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> you could be right. But anyway, yeah, I think so. I think let's so. get off world titles for woodchopping and get on yeah, the knife. Yeah, yeah. So where'd you, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I was born in Bega, New South Wales, I, far I, south coast of yeah. New South Wales, Australia. I live down there now still. Um, I live in a little... It's an area west of Bega, southwest of Bega, um, 
called Tantawanglo. It's it's um, yeah, just it's an area. It's it's not anything. I live off grid, which is a real challenge for me in knife making. Um, I don't have electricity, um, so anything that I do in knife making, any machinery that I have, I have to run it on a generator, or everything else um, is done by hand. So I guess that's the difference between what I do and what a lot of other guys do in knife making. 95% of what I do would be by hand. But, um, yeah, living off grid's got its challenges, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, fair enough. No, I can see that. Yeah, I've, I've actually been out to your place there. So, yeah, it's just so beautiful. I, yeah, a bit jealous. How old's that house? Uh, it's about 130 years old, we reckon. Yeah. And I still haven't fixed the chimney up. <laughs> I've got to see the legendary chimney. <laughs> it's a real old, it's a real, it's a real old, um, old slab built. Yeah, yeah. Hut, really? but That's it's amazing. Like it's, it's only got a couple of rooms in it, but um, for my partner and I, it's it's utopia. And when you think about six kids were brought up in that house, yeah, it's quite amazing. There's plenty of room for. Wow. So Colleen and oh, that's really? for sure. Wow. There you go. Yeah, they were the days, eh, when you had a two-bedroom <laughs> house and six kids running around. Makes you wonder how they made the kids. But anyway, Yeah, but if you think go. about it, there's a lot of stuff that we don't need these days. We've, we've got this perception of space. You know, my, my workbench, for instance, it's three feet wide and two feet deep. That's it. And I do all my knife making there after I grind my stuff or do anything that I need to do on a grinder. It's onto a bench that's three feet by two feet. And that's the challenge. Away you go. And that's, but that's the thing. A lot of people, they get into knife making and they, well, we see it all the time where they think they need every tool and every, they can't do it because they don't have the big enough shed or anything. And, you know, I'm one of those guys. If my shed's not big enough, Ian, I'm not making knives, that's for sure. Um, but but you're the other end of the spectrum. So it's a, it's an inspiration for most people to see what you can do in such a small yeah, area, look, you know? The thing about it is I, I reckon 90, 90% of knife making is about your attitude, um, nothing else. It's like so many things in life. Um, we always we always say at work, some people make knives, other people make excuses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but it is. It really is like so many things in life. Um, it's about attitude and your attitude to um, to the actual finished product. And, um, you know, I've had, I've had a, a, a few particular influences in my knife making um, in those five short years, but... The information that they've passed on to me is just—it's indelible. You know, you can't—you—you you just couldn't pay for it. Um, but the other thing about knife making, more than anything, we all want to get to the end. There's no doubt about that. To see how good a, a product we might have done, but sitting down, taking your time, and actually listening to these people, listening to actually what they're telling you, is. Um, is a big thing. Hello, what's going just on there? Cora's uh, just bringing up your Instagram on the oh, yeah. main screen for everyone to have a look at. Um, so you can yep. see that Ian 
Ian goes under two feathers board. Now you've got a you're speaking about you know your influences and and the people that have helped you out through your time. Um, Corin and I can take a pretty good stab at who they are, basically because we do know. But for anyone out there that's um, not really familiar with, you know, I guess where your styling comes from, who who would be your main sort of influence? I guess in the particularly in the Australian knife making scene. So the way that Look, you um, work on your knives at the moment. I can, yeah, nice comment, Andrew. <laughs> Bingo, you win. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no doubt that Keith Flutter lit the wick for me. Um, I did a, when I did the course with Keith, it was, was the, like the, the smithing type course where I actually hammered a, hammered the knife out and, and got the result. And um, then I I had a, I came across Peter Del Raso's work. And to me, I can remember, the first conversation that I ever had with him was, I, I think I messaged him because I found his, um, his Facebook page and I messaged him and I, I just said to him, um, and it was probably a, a little bit forward, but I, I tend to, be a bit like that. If I like something, I'll say I like it and whatever. And I said, if I'm going to be a knife maker, that's where I want to be in knife making. And obviously, the Loveless style knives, right. um, Bob Loveless was was absolutely influential in in the hunting knife and other knife scene in America. Um, and I just love his basic designs. They're basic. They're I won't say one of a kind, but they work. And that's oh. the thing about a knife. It's got to work. That's the end thing. I don't care how good a knife looks or how basic it looks. If it does what it's supposed to do and fit for purpose, then that's all you need to do. And Peter Del Raso. Uh, bullshit. Yeah. bullshit. 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 You, you do care. Because, mate, your fit and finish is perfect. People people don't accidentally get perfect fit and finish yeah, look, through not Yeah, I caring. do care. That's the whole thing. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't sell a knife to anyone if I wasn't happy to, um, to use it myself. <laughs> Funny yep. enough, I haven't, haven't made myself a knife for years because I'm too busy making them for not for other people or whatever. But, look, Peter Del Raso, he, he'd be at the top of the tree from um, – an influencer, we've actually become pretty good mates. Another one that really influenced me is is Sean McIntyre. I had the privilege of spending two days one on one with Sean um, up in a forge in Canberra, and yeah, what he doesn't know about knife making um, isn't worth knowing. But I must say, Kev is another person that I took a lot of notice to in. Um, my early days and um i just and same with corin i just really respect um being able to talk to you guys because you are you give your information so freely and um yeah i'd say to anyone out there in knife i can just don't be afraid to ask approach these people get some people that you can look to and and that you can take an influence from um it just makes the journey so much easier because I can guarantee you they've made all the mistakes you're making and, um, yeah, it's just a great place to start. 
pick a, pick something you like. But I will say in picking something you like, develop your own style right from day one if you can. Mm. Know where you want to go. Yeah, see, I break knives too. Um, <laughs> I'm not afraid to show the faults or the, the failures or whatever else because there's a great, great lesson just right in that picture right there. And that was about the jimping, and I obviously caused a stress yeah. fraction, a stress yeah. rise. I think everyone, everyone who's anyone that's done jimping on a preheat-treated knife uh, has experienced that exact thing. Yeah, especially fast quench stuff. Oh, there's a comment from me. What went wrong? Yeah, that's the that's <laughs> middle of that screen. <laughs> what went so, wrong from Kev's forge? <laughs> so let's go. Yeah. Let's go back a bit. Let's go back a bit and talk about that because we got a question right early on about um, uh, about quenching W two. So we may as well fit that in there. Uh, Did you see it, Kev? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Facebook user. Here it is. Here. Yeah. Hey, Ian. Speaking of W two, I just got some from Corrin and I don't want to quench it in water. Well done. Mm. Great start. We're off to a top start. Don't do that. Keep going. Yeah, look, you guys take it from Kev there. could probably tell you a lot more about W2 than what I can. It's properties because he's used it for a long, long time. W2 is something that um, essentially I started knife making and I started using 1084. I used that specific steel for over three years because it's just such a great steel. It's a good it pisses me off when people say it's just a learner steel. It's not a learner yeah. steel at all. It's a great steel. And um, I got to a point where I thought, yeah, look, I'd, I'd really like to try something else. And I took advantage of of um, having a conversation with Kevin Cashin when he was out here for the um, the um, show we held, held in Canberra. Yeah. And um, he said to me, look, Ian, um, you've obviously learned how to use 1084. If you're going to move on to something just a little bit more complex, but not too, he said, if you and if you want another really great steel, he said, go to W2. So I went to W2, and um, I'm actually having a lot of fun with it now because I've learned how to heat treat it. Um, thanks for the question. The question there is, I don't heat, I don't quench my W2 blades in, um, I don't quench them in water. I leave that to Uncle Keith. He knows a lot more about um, W2. You need balls of steel. Yeah, to do it. I always use a fast inch, a fast quench oil, which I happen to get from Kevin Slattery. He had a, <laughs> a, a, a he had a, a few liters of um, K quench. I think it is Kev Horton's K quench. It is, yeah, it's the Horton's K quench, mate. Yeah, um, left over. I, and, I, um, I, bought, I bought the twenty liter tub from Corin, filled up my ten liter quench tank. Um, and you and I were talking about it on one of your visits up to my workshop. And I was like, yeah. oh, hang on a second. I remember going down to the bottom garage and I was like, hang on a second. And I went down there and yep, there it was probably about or close to half the, half the tub. Mm. And yeah, that was my suggestion at the time. Definitely with the, the W2. Yeah. And, and since then, like I haven't, haven't looked back. I had a couple of problems, um, early on. And that, that's one of them right there um, that's on screen, a couple of failures. But then I decided, particularly when I wanted to try and get a hum on, um, 
I had a conversation with Sean McIntyre, and um, Sean's another one of those guys that's very forthcoming in, with information. And mm. um, he, he, he sort of gave me his recipe about, because I think some of the guys in Melbourne were have a little, having a little bit of trouble with W2, but he gave me his recipe and um, to use W2, and it, it actually, it was amazing what happened. Um, mm. It involved the quench process twice, Firstly, in canola, which is a, a much slower quench. Um, and then secondly, in the fast quench, the Horton's K quench. And um, I found that fascinating. But it taught me a lot about, a lot more about the steel itself and what you might need to do to get it into the realms of um, not usability, but, but making sure that things come out the way you want them. And um, you might have seen some of those harmons on the previous slides. They're actually, and I don't mind saying it myself, they're actually quite spectacular. Um, it's not all my doing. It's all about, um, you know, the information that Sean gave me, the, the, the temperatures, the, all of those sorts of things. And I've got a couple that I haven't shown yet that um, I'm working on and I'm really liking what I'm seeing. So... W2's the thing that I'm playing around with at the most. And um, yeah. one day I'm going to get a good hum on on one, Kev, to rival some of yours. So, Yeah, well, um, it's funny. Um, when you go back and we talk about influence, influences and stuff and free, free information and things like that, the good thing about it is when you give the information out to people and they start doing what you've done, which is jagging out decent hum ons you first go around, no, seriously, they, they are really nice. I had to take a step back, and it was something that you wrote up um, on one of the Facebook groups regarding this round of Hamons, and it was one of your reference points to it. Now, I get asked about W2 quite a bit, and I have to apologise to people probably from about maybe nine months ago, because one of the funny things is when you start getting good results with, say, W2, you start producing Hamons. What happened with me anyway was I started to get a little bit sloppy with dropping some of those processes because the results were coming through. There was a period of time where I was pretty much getting what I was expecting to get out of the Hamons. You know, the different patterns and stuff I was trying to prescribe were coming out nice arshy lines on them and all that sort of stuff. And then there was a period where that beca started becoming a little more difficult. It may have coincided with, and I may have used the excuse of, um, there was a worldwide thing for a short period of time about people you know, having a bit of a cry about the potential that the steel that was supplied was the reason why the Hamons weren't coming out so good. That didn't actually calculate well with me because I'd bought a whole stack of W2 off Corrin and I was getting good hormones that started getting, you know, not as vibrant, not as pronounced. And I had to take a big step back after reading, seeing your hormones and having a read about what you were saying. I was like, <laughs> I had to go back. See, we see it all the time. People. Yeah. People, well, I had to go people... back and go, okay, where, what am I not doing that I used to do? So I went back and found the document that, Sean McIntyre had pointed me in the direction of which, um, yeah, <laughs> I dropped the ball. 
Like you get results and you go, I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to be as precise. Oh, I've nailed this thing. Hamons are great. It is a very structured process, very, very methodical process with temperatures, descending, normalizings, a whole lot of bunch of stuffs came in that I personally just got a bit slack with because I was getting Hamons that were good enough for me. So when I saw your stuff, I went, hang on a second. I should be getting as good a Hamons as what Ian's getting. I'm not doing something that I used to do. And I went back and re found that document, reapplied that structure. And the batch that I'm working on, I've got a batch that's coming out at the moment. They're back to that stage where I'm stoked with them. Like I'm looking at the Hamons going, yeah, this, this is what I was after. And it just gave me a little slap around the face in terms of naughty boy, there's a, there's a way of achieving these results and it's a prescribed method. And if you start dropping off things and getting a bit slack, obviously you're not going to get the same outcomes. So when I've had people recently sort of hit me up about tips with W2 and stuff, I'm saying, look, I'll send you a document. It's, it's free out there. It's on the internet. It's not a, it's not a um, secret document. I say, I didn't do it. It was written by Sean McIntyre. He referenced a lot of the data from someone else, and he openly says that in the data. Give me your email address, and I'll send the document to you. And I said, the rest up to you. You know, you're still going to have trial and error, but it's it's a steel that's not that much different to W uh, to 1075, 1084 in in terms of the forging side of thing in particular, but the heat treating is a lot different. Do you want me to get this question? Pick yeah. this one up. So, so basically W2 and any of the W steels like W1, W2 are water quenched tool steels and they were made for anything that required a shallow hardening. That would be anything like a file, for example. If you harden a file too deeply past the surface, then the core mean, is, is very brittle and it, it can break easily. Um, a little while ago, Ian was talking about axes, making W2 out of axes. Again, you want to have the edge and the, the thinner sections very, very hard, but the thicker sections just tough. And so it's a shallow hardening, um, shallow hardening steel, and uh, uh, and that's any any tooling that was required to have only a shallow hardening, not a deep through harden, like a spring would require a through harden. There you go. Yeah, Matt's stuck and at home with the kids. Matt would be another person that would be really good to talk about W two with, but he's not here, so we're not even going to talk about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll focus on our we'll focus on our knowledgeable um, guests that we've got. Um, so I Ian, knowledgeable, I've got a long way to oh. go yet, Kev. Don't you worry about that. I haven't I haven't yeah, even started to make the best knife that I've ever made yet. No, no you're a sponge it. though. You're a sponge, and you're <laughs> doing the right thing, and you're asking the right people. And going mm. back to what you were saying about that, don't be afraid to ask people. For information i mean there's certain people out there they might have one or two secrets proprietary techniques or something that they may not want to tell the world and it, in some regards you've got to be satisfied with that but for your basic sort of tips and processes on getting that blade you know to a good standard you won't find too many knife makers that aren't uh willing to offer you know what they understand what their knowledge is on getting to that point yeah, look, I, I, once again, the, the biggest part of knife making for me, and it's been belted into me 
a hundred times by Peter Del Raso. Fit and finish, fit and finish, fit and finish. Yep. Um, it's just so important. Um, and and basic skills as well. Like, I mean, I, I, it's, it's just, I think when I talk about basic skills, I mean not using a mill, but learning how to use a file. Um, all of those things that contribute can be done, everything pretty much that's done by machine can be done by hand. And hmm. if you understand how to do it by hand, then when you need to work something around, like if you make a small mistake or whatever, um, if you know how to do it by hand, you'll figure out how to do a workaround. It's same with guard fitting, um, all those finer detail things. If you if you really know the basic skills, like I, I just don't worry about guards anymore because I know I'm not going to get any gaps. And people people say to me, how do you know you're not going to get any gaps? Because if there is a small gap, it's really, really easy to fix if you know how. And you don't need much know-how to fix those things. So if you've got a gap at the bottom of your blade, you can squeeze, sorry, the, at the bottom of the um, ricasso where your your, um, your guard fits, you can squeeze it, to take it off and squeeze it together and then recut the top. You know, things as yep. simple as yep. that. If you've got little tiny gaps at the top, you can peen it. Um, there's just so many little tips and tricks. But... It all gets back to basic skills. I know guys have got workshops that are full of the most expensive tools. Um, they must have spent a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money on, um, on getting to there. But it doesn't just happen. You know, that basic knowledge is what it's all about. And one of the things I love about knife shows, um, oh, there's Red. Um, one of the things <laughs> I love about knife shows is, is talking to people and, and asking questions and how do you do this, how do you do that, you know? Um, yeah. Don't ever – there's – that's that that there, that one back there, that was a, the first hunting knife I made myself and I still use it, and that's a, a typical Loveless-style knife. Um, yeah, nice. I've never, gone, I've never gone away from it, but it was one of the first ones I ever made. I'm just trying I, – I, I... I'm just flicking through to find one of you fitting a guard just so we can talk, put it up as we talk. But, you know, I did, um, I'll, I'll just throw in, I did a, uh, a, a session with you. There's two, basically there's two major knife events in Australia for makers. The first is Australian blade symposium. It's a big event. There's world-class people coming. We had Kyle Royer, Kevin Cashin, all the big guys come to that one. If you're going to go to an event, it's an excellent event. But if you get your skills together and join the guild, there's an event called Knife Camp. Now, it's held in December every year, except probably 2020, like everything else in 2020. And at that event last year, it's a similar event to the symposium, but there's a lot less people and it's hands-on and it's, frankly, it's well underpriced. I don't know if we can hold the price at what it's been. And... At that event, I did uh, guard fitting with Ian, and yeah, my first perfect first guard, perfect. And why is it perfect? Because you know the instruction from Ian, showing hands on how to fit that guard, um, was just brilliant. 
I really enjoyed it. And I'm probably never going to fit a guard to a knife. I don't make guards, knives with guards. I, I make barrel knives. I can fit a ferrule just fine. Um, but to be truthful, um, just such a, he's got the processes down, simple oh. and super effective. Simple and effective. Yeah, look, that's fair to and, say. And it comes from trial and error too. Like, I mean, I, I, I haven't always been simple and super effective, but like I said, basic skills. Um, hello, here's a question from Les. Yeah, no, that's that's a great attitude to have, Les. Um, yeah, hand tools first. There's a lot of people, there's a really good message in that. And the last three words. Um, oh, here's Nick Tanner. Best <laughs> Best. Mate, there's so many comments coming up. I can flick them all up on the screen, and I'm sorry I'm not, guys. We'll come back. At the end, we'll do a question time. We'll get you to throw questions up. But go for this one. Les, the last three words. It's just it's first. just such a good thing to know. Um, and and same with, um, with gaps in anything. Like a, a lot of people have um, trouble doing um, tapered tangs and things like that. It's Once again, it's basic skills. You've got to, you've got to learn how to work it and how it works with you. I hear a lot of things and there's a lot of buzzwords around like muscle memory and, and all those things. There's only one memory I've got and that's got to do with my head. Um, muscle memory probably is more about when you're hammering steel and things like that. But, yeah, the only memory I have is of the techniques that I use. Um, I know who I know who this is talking. Um, this will be Robert Ian Fraser, 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 Robert Fraser, Fraser. I reckon he hasn't uh, clicked on the link at the top of the screen. It, like it's the same with it. Doesn't matter what part of a knife you're looking at, um, and and that's a classic example right there. Handles, handles. So the, for the for the benefit for the benefit of the podcast, the question or the statement that's on the screen is: the handles on Ian's knives are so amazing. The knife seems to fit so many different hands, big and small. The last three Sydney knife shows, Ian has put a knife up for the door raffle and I sell the tickets by getting people to hold it and most will then buy a ticket. And see, there's a lesson in that too about handles. Um, I, I said before about learning to make, oh, that I love the Loveless style and the way Peter Del Raso does his knives. Um, I also watch two people in particular in relation to handles. There's two guys in America, I believe, that make handles like no one else um, for the style of knife that I make. There's people that make great handles, no doubt, but Galado knives, if anyone wants to have a look at good handles, have a look at Galado knives and also um, Sean... Come on, Hatcher. Kev, help me here. Sean Hatcher. Yeah, those two, those two guys knives, yeah. make handles like you wouldn't believe. Um, I reckon they're from a hunting knife style, probably the best out there. Sorry, I just knocked the bottle of wine over. Lucky I had the the lid on it. But um, <laughs> the challenge is when you see the the work that's done by these guys, try to actually work out how to do it yourself. And that's a, that's a trial and error thing once again, but it becomes the basic skill. Like 
the sculpturing in a handle really makes a handle, I reckon, and that's why um, so many of my handles fit so many different hands because of the way that they're sculpted. But um, it takes time to learn that stuff once again. That's the key thing. That key thing that you just touched on there, Ian, it takes time. It takes time to learn these things. Absolutely. And I think think sometimes because, you know, I, I pride myself on my handle um, fitting as well and shaping and how it fits in the hand. I get a lot of positive feedback at shows in particular where, you know, the good thing about a show is quite soon into it, you'll know if people like your knives or not because of, you know, how much th- how much time they spend with one in their hand and then how much they talk about it. And I, I got a lot of, get a lot of positive feedback about the handles that I do, but it took a couple of years at least, maybe three years, of experimenting and trial and error before I got confident and just started working on a particular style. And then even then there's feedback that comes from other sources um, on how to make very subtle improvements in them. And yeah, I think a lot of the time, especially with the newer guys, they might get a little bit um, dejected, perhaps probably not the right word that they're not nailing at first go. It's like, come on, guys, man, if you nailed at first go, every go, people like me would probably just freaking give up, you know, because it took a lot of time and effort to get to that standard that you've got where people pick up your knife and they go, man, that feels good, you mm. know. But you, you take on board the things, like I said, lessons learned. You look at people like Hatcher and you'd be amazed and you go, far out, I'm going to try something like that and, and go for it, just try it out. Yeah. The secret is with any of that stuff, Kev, I reckon, and like any knife makers out there, beginning knife makers, um, one of the critical things is to learn how to design a knife. And Mm. uh, once again, that's basic stuff again. Anyone that's new to knife making, get yourselves a set of French curves. They are absolutely invaluable when it comes to designing knives because you can – and the other thing about – what I incorporate into the knives that I make is all of the circles actually meet somewhere. They mightn't meet on the knife, but they meet off the page somewhere. So I draw the whole thing. If there's a circle that's got to fit in there, I draw the whole circle or the whole curve or whatever I can fit on the page. And you'd be amazed what happens when you make things intersect. Now, I I must say I do come from an engineering design background. Um, that was my one of my first jobs that I ever had as a design draftsman. And so I learned how to, to draw things and, and you learn how to to look at things and you look you look at ratios of, of handle to blade to ricasso to all those sorts of things. And I always say if if something looks right, it usually is. So yeah. don't stuff about with it. If you get it to a point where it looks right, then go with that, um, but make things flow as well. One of the one of the hardest things, and one of the, the 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 things that I see a lot in what people do, they don't consider the flow in a knife. If you look at, say, that knife there on screen now, or that well, that that's the same knife at an earlier stage, but it's a perfect curve from the back of the knife right to the tip. Yeah. Okay, there's no flat areas. It's actually curved the whole way. Same with the bottom of the handle. It curves and it curves into 
the guard, and then the front of the guard is curved back a bit to the flat up the front of, at the back of the ricasso there, and then most of the blade is curved. So I really, I'm really into curves. Um, I think really subtle curves just add so much to to the look of a knife. But um, yeah, so many things yeah, we could talk. Yeah, Flows back almost to that same sort of thing about um, what makes a good painting. Why do people stand in front of a painting and enjoy that painting? And a lot of it's to do with the way that the composition's done so that you as a person viewing that painting, your eye is drawn from one section through to another and it flows across that painting. And that's what you want to have with your knives as well, is you want the flow to go from the tip to the tail without anything in there that sort of makes you sort of pause and go, Ugh, what's that? You know, and, and and like you're just saying there, the flow French curves are a wonderful thing. I use them. Um, they're a very basic thing. You get them from the bloody two dollar junk shops, Chinese junk shops in their art sections for about five bucks. You'll save yourself twenty dollars on buying one from a proper art store, and they're the exact same thing that you need. So they cost about five bucks for a set yeah. and they've got yeah. every single curve that you'll ever need to use in your life as a knife maker probably That's more it. curves than you'll ever need um yeah. the other the other thing in that yeah, um absolutely. You only use a couple, we've seen or i've picked up and i'll i'll point out kind of probably point out the obvious to people from your, your instagram in particular um another thing is to use templates what's your what's your view on use the use of templates yeah look templates are uh... If you develop a, a style and a knife that really works, make a template. They, they just cut down the time that that um, it takes to um, you know to put something together. Uh, I if I get a piece of steel, like I don't just work. Yeah, my work ethic's a bit different to a lot of people. If I'm going to cut a piece of steel because of the way that I heat treat, and we'll get into that in a little while. Um, if you you consider that a, a piece of steel is, what, three foot long, Corin? I think? Three to four, yeah. Three to four. yeah three, if three I buy four, a piece of steel, yeah. I'm not just going to cut one knife out. Um, I'm going to cut a whole heap. So oh. I might make five or six knives out of the one strip of steel. Um and the reason I do that is because of the processes that I use. Because um, I live off grid and I just can't go and flick a switch, I'll cut five knives out and I'll profile five knives and I'll grind five knives. knives. And then, because for me, lighting my forge, if I was just going to heat treat one knife, that's inefficient. I'd rather heat treat six because the way that I temper my blades, believe it or not, is in a Weber barbecue. Um, people go, what? What the hell? Um, how could that be, you know, an efficient process? <clears throat> but um, tempering is about a heat source that you can regulate. And I've got a um, – I bought one of the – what are they called, Corin? Those bloody temperature things? Oh, yeah, thermometer or K-type um, thermocouple. A thermocouple, and I put that in my barbecue, and um, I can regulate the temperature in my barbecue, which is a gas, you know, um, gas barbecue, and it's within a degree or two. So I temper all my knives in the Weber. Now, if I'm going to set the Weber up 
it's inefficient for me to light it just to temper one blade. Um, <laughs> good on you, Mert. Don't, don't worry about don't worry about what's happening on the screen. <laughs> we'll explain that talking? to the listeners after. <laughs> Is he talking about hand sand and the knife? Um, <laughs> Let's not go there. It's just anyway, it's just yeah, so I like to be efficient. So I'll 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 temper and I'll heat treat and temper six blades at once, but I'll only <clears> ever finish one knife at a time. That's the difference. Just getting back to that picture that it's on the screen there now. One of the hardest things in knife making that I ever found, and I had a lot of trouble with it, is making lines disappear. Like that's a guard on a knife. Um, and you can't see where the guard hits the, and this is what I taught in that um, guard fitting exercise in Canberra, Corin. A lot of people do it different ways. I have a technique that I've developed. Um, I haven't seen anyone else do it yet. Um, it's a press fit, oh, but it's a it's I a press fit I in a vice. I wouldn't do it any. I wouldn't do it any other way, mate. I've tried fitting guards my whole life. I do, as you know, do hidden tangs, uh, stick tangs when I when I make them, and I've I am anal about getting my fit right, but I've never seen a method as simple and 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 as easily accomplished with simple tools. There's no yeah. mill. There's no, no you know, yeah. just just it's just simple. Yeah, well, that's just press fitted with a, a normal vice, you know, because you can yeah. you can put a lot of force very very slowly. Um, you don't need a press to do it. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Back to what was I'll I? Just, um, I, I I'm not sure, but I'm going to flick. I'm going to flick back. This is a little bit disjointed, but it that's is. okay. <laughs> I, I'm just going to flick back to a couple of things. Warren Whelan asked, "How do you join the guild? If you aren't a member of the guild, get your shit together and join." You don't need to make great knives to join the guild as a probationary member. You need to make semi-decent knives that show that you're committed to knife making. They, they, some people will say to you, right, that the guild is some elitist group. It's just a load of horseshit. It's a bunch of blokes that are so committed to knife making that they're willing to put their knives on the table in front of another bunch of knife makers and have them assessed. All right? And, and that says you can take feedback right? Being a member of the guild is like, um, and then once you're in a course, then people say, oh, well, you can only go to the guild events if you're a member of the guild. Well, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, they're not running them That's why they're guild it's events. A, that's why they're guild events, right? It, it's right. not like it's a, and as Nicholas Tanner says in the very next comment, the best money you can spend is going to that knife camp. And I, I can only agree, mate. Guys like Peter Del Rasso, Ian Stewart, Sean McIntyre, so, um, Doug Timms. Sorry, how do you join the guild? Though you need to go yeah. onto the guild's oh, yeah. go onto the sorry. guild's website. The go onto the guild's website, which is www.akg.org.com. Is it something like that? Anyway, .au. au au. There will be a pro forma on there to join up. How to join up? There will be a standards document on there about what will be assessed and the expected outcome. To join as a probationary member, you need to make three knives, different styles, with very limited changes in, in things on them. And they need to meet 50% of that 
standards document selection uh, marking criteria, 50%. So it's not a lot. It's not to say... It's a just, half decent It's not to knife. say make a shit knife and throw decent. it in there. Don't half-ass it and throw a knife in there. If you want to join the guild, you try to join the guild, and the guilds are normally defined as, you know, the top tier of people in that sort of uh, arena, woodworkers' guilds, knife makers' guilds, a lot of different things in there. So put a decent amount of effort into making your knives and get a buzz out of it if you actually get better than 50%. But the 50% is not overly difficult to achieve. That gets you in the door as a probationary member. And it's assessed by your... Um, assessed it for the region, for the state or territory you're in, and you'll need to look that up online because I'm not sure who's who now. When you come 12 months on to become a full member, you have to be in the Guild as a, as a probationary member for 12 months, then you need to submit three knives of a set criteria. So you'll need to have a full tang, tapered tang knife. You'll need to have a knife with metal on metal finish, whether that's guards or bolsters, it's up to you. And, you know, there's other there's other stuff on there which I can't remember off the top of my head. That then you need to get, it's like being at school if you want to get an A. You've got to be, I think it's 85%. So you can get like two points wrong, only two points wrong out of each knife um, for that full member assessment. But the criteria that you're getting assessed on it's there, it's available. You know what the judge or your state rep will be looking for. So you can't, like, it's it's way better structured than when I joined the guild and I got full membership and it was kind of aloof and a bit bloody out there. Um, it's much more structured process. And yes, it's a little bit harder to get into the guild than it used to be, but that's what members were calling for as well. They were actually saying, Let's let's make this a little bit difficult to get in. Let's make it a challenge for people. And ideally, if you can knock out three good quality knives with good quality fit and finish, you will get into the guild. And and it's it's that. And it's everything that Ian's talked about while we've had him on here tonight so far, and what we've talked about in the past as well. It's about building a good knife to the best of your abilities and focusing on fit and finish. Yeah, that, being, that being a member of the guild, <clears throat> you don't get guild membership in a cornflakes packet. You've got to work for it. But what's really important that I find is once you've got probationary member membership, and, and to be honest, it's not hard to get. Owen, you should just go for it. Yeah. You go for the probationary member. Once you've got the probationary membership, there's guys out there that will help you out that won't help you out on Facebook. You won't see Sean McIntyre on Facebook giving advice. But if you're a probationary member of the Guild, he knows straight away you're committed to knife making and he's not wasting his time in helping you out. Same like guys like, um, I'm not saying they'll help you, but guys like Peter Del Rasso and that, if you have shown the commitment to get Guild membership, those guys are going to be far more likely to open their door, welcome you in, because you are committed to the sport. You're not just a blow-in that's going to blow out again. Those guys have been around. They've seen people come and go. They're not being aloof about it. They're just not wasting their time. And I, I respect that. They're full-time knife makers in some cases. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, join I think the it's actually. Nicholas. I think it's actually in the Guild's charter that as a member of the Guild, you can't not assist 
another member of the guild. To the level that you to the level that you is is probably questionable, but and the attitude that you're getting approached with, but you, as a guild member, you should be freely helping out other guild members if they ask for help, and most of that then flows on. In all honesty, most of that flows on to just giving advice freely, in any sense of the word, to anyone that asks. It doesn't mean that you've got to ask for a imaginary secret handshake or anything like that they don't exist it's just ask nicely understand the person's position if we were talking earlier Corin, before you get up before you got your shit together um ian was saying he's back in full-time employment now for the rural fire service so if you're hitting ian up now and asking questions about ian ian help me out with fitting my guards and ian doesn't get back to you for two weeks and you start getting pissed off um Ian's in a situation now where someone's paying him a salary and that takes precedence. So you've got to understand circumstances with people. The modern world of Instagram and Facebook, you know, what we're doing here now live, um, everything's instant. you just got to understand sometimes there's a situation people are in. might take them a couple of days. It might take them a week or whatever. Most people will get back to you. Yeah, look, I, I agree 100%, Kev and Corin, with all of your sentiments so far. I can honestly say, if anything changed my knife-making world, more than anything, was joining the Guild. Yeah, nice. That first time you go to a Guild show, that first time you go to a Guild show down in Melbourne, um, you know, you have that bag of bloody emotions, mate. It's exciting, it's nerve-wracking, it, it's just awesome and it's daunting and... You know, you've got all these guys in there, like I said, Sean, Peter, um, Andrew from South Africa. I forgot his surname now. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you got all these. That would be Andrew, Andrew Franklin. Franklin. Ah, that's it. Yeah, Andrew Franklin, who was a <laughs> member of, was or still is a member of the South African Guild, which is really hard to get into. You want to talk about hard guilds to get into, have a look at the South African Guild. It's an um, easy one to get asked from as well, by yeah, the way. Yeah, Will Morrison, a whole bunch of other guys down there that go to that show, and you've got access to these guys, and you might walk past their tables and, you know, swallow a bit of humble pie, thinking your knives are good, and then you see others and you're like, oh, holy shit. But you've just got to take it the right way. You've got to go far out, man. Like Ian's done, how do I get my knives looking like Peter Del Rasso's? Well, maybe I should ask Peter Del Rosso because he's the one that's doing it. You know, the thing is, and, like, yeah, I had a I had a conversation with Peter at Melbourne, and um, we we got into onto the whole thing. And, and like, I don't want to be a Peter Del Rosso in knife making. I want to be an Ian Stewart in knife making. And um, and he smiled when I said that. Um, yeah, look, it's it's all about the influences in your life and. The other thing yeah. that I've found out about influencers, some people have, have criticised me because they say a lot of my knives have looked like looked like Peter Del Rosso knives. Well, so what? They're still my knives. <laughs> um, everybody has influences in their life. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't matter. Like I've got some guys that have approached me about um, making uh, one of my utility knives and... Um, I, I, I'm just so stoked because they've they've chosen to make the utility knife that I, I've designed. And whilst it might have initially been um, centred around a Del Rosso design, 
I have my own unique handle design that I've added to it. So once again, it's my design. But and um, and it, you know whether or not it was originally Del Rasso's design because he's got his influences from from Loveless and yeah, others absolutely. as well. So you yeah, can keep you, you can keep following it back and back and back in time when you join those dots. Um, yep. The the thing is the thing is you're not making a copy of somebody else's knife. Everybody's influenced by other knives. We we had an incident just recently where um, a guy got accused of uh, of copying someone else's knives. Two guild members, and both guild members looked at the two knives and said they're totally different. And and it's just like people's perceptions are a bit odd sometimes, particularly yeah. when you're talking about three the three features that were seen to be the same was it's a a forge finish, a copper guard, and an antler handle. Well, no one has fucking rights to that. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're exactly Probably right. the only difference there. Only difference there for me would be I don't often use. I actually haven't used copper in a long time, but I would do forge finish, bronze, and antler. <laughs> no worries. No, look, there's just so many things, things that are just. So variable, you know. It's not like we um, we give templates to everyone. That would be a different matter. Um, yeah. yeah, I've I've given a few plans. Um, I've got a few plans off other people. Um, there you go, Kev. Owen just said I've done a Kev knockoff. Good oh yeah, <laughs> but 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 Owen, uh, uh, knock, and mate. I said this. I said that to Owen though when he asked me about it, which I, I was same as you. I was like, oh, thanks for asking. I was like that. I found that actually quite. I was genuinely um taken back by that a little bit actually but i explained to owen oh man i'm happy for you to go for it but it wasn't my initial design i took influence off other people but he just liked that knife of mine so he asked about did i did i mind if he made or used that as his basis for his knife it's like no man go for it hell that's cool. awesome because i then want to see what are you doing that will be slightly different to what i did and I might even Rip take something <laughs> from that person's, yeah. And when you've got new people, that this is the funny thing. When you have new guys or new makers coming in, sometimes what they do is a different thing. It just you just go, wow, I didn't think of that. I'm too grounded in my processes or grounded in my ways. Other times, probably more so, they do weird things and you go, yeah, I'm not entirely sold on that, but my earliest knives were a lot of that as well it was like you know you go through a stage of just making what you want to make with no rules applied until you finally start to settle on something that you know your design or your style and something that you want to go go through there's that bloody parrot again mate you want to get a you want to get a 22 and sort that bloody bird out mate <laughs> <laughs> I reckon he'd roast up pretty good. He's pretty fat. He's, he's my quality control. If you really Put it must, on the mantle. Know, that's what he's quality control. Oh, red. <laughs> it's a wild bird. So you for, think for the benefit mate. for the benefit of the podcast, up on the screen is a a male king parrot. Now you can tell he's a male because of the red head, and um, he's. Uh, we get a lot of parrots in Australia. For those listening overseas, they're probably not familiar with. The amount of parrots we different types of parrots we get uh some of them are very friendly and a lot of them are very intelligent and uh the old king parrot's a classic example of a very intelligent bird because he's he's read ian really well and he's coming in for a feed i'm guessing yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he'd be a bit i bet he's a bit upset with you ian at the moment 
Yeah, he probably is. Yeah, he's been he's a bit pissed going, off. What's going on here, mate? You're not here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. You didn't tell me there was going to be people listening from overseas, Corin. Oh, oh, yeah, we had... I can't. Uh, where is he? About half uh, our listenership. Yeah, we got Connie Connie Hansen, who's from Sweden. And we had Connie on here uh, a few weeks back. And I'm not sure if he's still on here, but Eric Markman was... He said g'day a while ago. Yeah, Eric Markman said about 10 to 9 our time said g'day. If, Ian, if you want to have a look at some good knives, have a look at Eric's stuff. Does a lot of Eric folders, Markman. slip joints. Yeah, Eric Markman. He's one of the Vikings from Blade Show. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, look, that's another. That's a whole other story, those those dreaded um, folding knives, which is something that I'm really, <laughs> really interested in. And um, yeah. once again, like I've made a couple of folding knives now. The first one that I made was a, a – well, it wasn't actually a Sean McIntyre knockoff. He, he put a picture up of all the parts that went – that made a, um, a folding knife and I thought well I'll design one but if I um, and it didn't look anything like Sean's but I thought if I made one of everything that he had on his page and put it together I'd have a folding knife and bugger me I still use it today that was three years ago um, I, 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 um, I got it right the first time round but once again, I made a lot of mistakes with it. So last year, I um, I had the the great pleasure of um, going across to to um, Western Australia with Toei, and um, yeah. he and I and and Mark Sinclair um, went and spent a week with Bruce Bruce Barnett, and um, we all first of all made I've never made steel before. And they took the piss out of me for the whole week because I'd never done anything that they were doing. But um, we had to make blade steel first and I made what was my first Damascus billet. And um, they said, oh, yeah, we'll just do a really simple pattern. All you do is this, this, this and this. And I thought, oh, yeah, but they were having a lend to me again. But I, I got this most remarkable knife out of, of that week in Western Australia and, and it Bruce said to me, and this was a compliment that I um, I really enjoyed, he said, Ian, I'd be happy to have that on my table at a knife show. And I thought, yeah. far out. But once again, it's taken those opportunities um, and learned from the best. There's nothing like See, it. The, bug, the bugger with that was I was actually meant to go over on that week, and <laughs> I can't remember why, but whatever misfortune <laughs> occurred, I didn't get there. And also, funny thing is, when you got back and I saw oh, you bastard, you've been over there. That's all. It was awesome, you <laughs> bastard. Not not a bad you bastard. Um, <laughs> but I ended up buying a spot welder <laughs> for when I do my um, minor locks, uh, slip joints with the bolsters and stuff. I still haven't taken that out of the box yet. <laughs> but one day, got one, one day it'll happen. I've got one too, Kevin. I haven't used it yet, but I intend. Yeah. Slip joint folders is another fascination of mine, and I intend to get into making some more slip joint folders. I um, I was fortunate enough enough to make enough steel in the the loaf that I made that I'll I'll probably get um, another twelve blades out of it. And um, yeah. yeah, I'm really I've, looking I've forward got to a, that. I've got some nice steel that I made over at Bill Burke's place in America, 
And when we went over there, we were doing liner lock bolts with Rick Dunkley. And I thought they were amazing. They were fiddly frigging things. You had to pull them apart a thousand times, little screws. Mm. But one of the interesting things, and it was, you know, regrettably not going over to see Bruce pre-lockdowns and all that, was when we were building a um, liner lock together, or, you know, he was on the same bench as me and we're trying to build a liner lock. The amount of cursing that he did and just saying that slip joints were so much easier and everything. I, because I haven't made the slip joint, I'm like, well, the principles of a liner lock aren't that crazy. They're just fiddly, tiny little screws, one size 172 thread count and all the rest of it. He was just cursing it and then just going about how much easier technically a slip joint was to put together. And then I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then when I saw your visit over there and you and Toey and Stink and Bruce doing all that stuff, I was like, man, I've got to get in on this. I've got to start making those. Yeah. No, and we saw all... that you had a, you you on your thing that had a, like, was that a Rupal dial? Yeah. 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 100 bucks. From America. There should be a, a place in Australia that sells them soon, I reckon. But anyway, we'll wait and see what happens there. Um, We're working on that. There's a couple of guys yeah. with CNCs that are keen on making them, and I'm yeah, working yeah. on that. They're that, not a complex thing. But... There, a question there from Robert Fraser. Um, where do I see myself going with my knives in the next few years? Look, Robert, there's absolutely no doubt I'd like to to branch out and um, and do a few different things. Two things that I really like about knife making um, into the future I want to spend a, a lot more time in the Bowie space. I don't know whether that will make. Be... When did you make that? I'm going to try and find the picture, Ian. When did you make oh, yeah. the uh, coat hanger Bowie? My coat hanger Bowie? That was years ago, Corin. That was just a, a, a design that I came up with. And, um, yeah, it, I found out that it's never, ever been di done by anyone ever before in the world, and I was pretty stoked about that. And um, I've actually had three mastersmiths tell me that they've never seen anything like it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll claim it as mine. Um, yeah, there's the four knives we made over at Bruce's. It was aw awesome. The other thing, um, Robert, that I want to explore is the, is the folding knife. So Bowie's and folding knives probably. And what do I can... Do you want to do a barrel knife? You're going to do a barrel knife? Yeah, I'm going to come up one weekend, Corin, or a week or however long it takes me because I'd, I'd really Six love weeks. to have the knife too. How long? <laughs> Six weeks. <laughs> You've obviously had a go, Kev. <laughs> but, um, well, I've got to admit, whiskey, whiskey got in the way of a little bit of our teaching. <laughs> whiskey, barbecues, good talk. Made, yeah, it's it's not all shit, knife making, stuff to be that. fair. That was good fun. But def you definitely, if you want to do a barrel knife, you've definitely got to see Corin to do it. Yeah, no, like I, I, I have no interest in them, but I think they are amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. The way that you just get all those elements and put them together, you know, it's not my taste in knife making. There's the... Oh, there, you go. Go. Wait, Here we go. there you go. There's, there she is. I saw it. I've seen it. Hey, come back. Come back. Scroll Damn down. It. What are you doing, mate? I'm doing... The, the, it went to auto scroll. This is the time of night stuff starts going wrong. But it, what what happened there was I, I got this awesome piece of um, stag antler, and everybody said that I ruined it by cutting all the the um, the dark stuff off it. But if you look at it there, I thought if I've got this piece of stag antler, I don't want to do a hidden tang knife 
and I don't want to do a full tang knife, but I'd really like to uh, highlight the steel around the top and through the back. So I made this, I designed this, what I call my coat hanger. And um, there's a channel that goes right through the piece of stag. And as you can see the handle there, it's got a hook on the bottom of it. So it comes out the back of the stag and goes back in the bottom. And then it fits up from underneath. So you have to fit the guard first. So that comes from the rear forward. Then you have to fit the stag. And then you can see the spacer between the guard and where the stag would be. And that just fits up and a pin goes through it. When you make the pin disappear, you can't see a pin in any of it. Not in the handle, not in anything. Um, and I've, I've sort of, I've got another two on the go at the moment, but they're sort of on the back burner. Um, I'm going to improve it. Um, and I talked to Sean <laughs> McIntyre about how I might improve that design. And um, Sean came back to me and said, I don't think you can. He said, I actually think you got it right the first time round. And I thought, no, nah, look, there's got to be a um, there's got to be a way we can improve it. Anyway, we were talking about it for a while, and he came back and he said, there is. And I said, what is it? And he said, well, the American market in particular is fascinated by takedown knives, so we've got to make a takedown version of it with one yeah, fuck yeah. one little screw up underneath that that the little that the the little spacer can slip out, and then the handle can come off, and then the guard can come back and make a takedown out of it. So that's something that I'm going to do in the uh, in the future. But, yeah, look, I'm a bullhead <laughs> when it comes to knife making. I still think I'm only scratching the surface. And it's, it's nice to hear that people think a lot about my knives, but I'm nowhere, nowhere in the, the, the class of a Peter Del Raso or a, or a Sean McIntyre. When How it comes many awards you won? How many awards you won at knife shows, eh? Yeah, I've won a few awards now. Um, <laughs> well, you can't keep winning awards and saying you're nowhere near as good because, it, you know, if you go to a knife show and there's a Del Rasso and a McIntyre and there's 10 awards, that those two are going to pick up eight. But these days, Ian, you've been picking up more than you've been getting your share, let's be honest. Yeah, but I, I, I often wonder about that. Like, is it what happens on the day or... Yeah, anyway, I, I won't go into it. I'm, I, I don't accept that stuff very lightly. Um, I don't take too you much. You've just got to be happy on, the, happy on the day that the bloody sun shone in your direction. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what I reckon with it. And if, you, if, if you put your best into the knife, then anything else is a bonus. That's the way I see it. Yeah. And if you happen to win well, an award... I've done judging at, the la at a couple of shows recently, and I have to say that the, the job is definitely not easy these days. Mm. Mm. A few years ago, like Coram was saying, a few years ago, and this is no no blowing smoke up their asses or anything, but a few years ago, yeah, it would have been probably Sean and Peter divvy up the prizes and just give them to those guys, you know. And it's particularly in the last two years, um, oh, I guess not including not including this year when unfortunately we've had everyone locked away and no shows to um, get people out there. But for the last two years of shows, um, the quality of work that's actually being entered into the categories, it's a big step up. 
like now now you've got to think about what you're doing now you have to actually take your time and really really assess everything that's coming in uh, not that as a judge normally you wouldn't but you, you're able to pretty much as a judge you know cast your eyes over 10 knives make a mental shortlist of three pretty quickly and then look at those now your shortlist is probably seven of the ten and then you know from there you've still got to work out what's the best and it's often a very 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 small detail that is involved now in separating the the cream from the milk <clears throat> I've done I've done four four years now four years of judging at uh, knife art association shows mm. and it's just um it's to the point now where I don't want to be judging. It's yeah, just it's kind of like it's that. Just too it's I don't too want to enter hard. my I don't want to enter my knives or be a judge. <laughs> I just want to go but and cop out and stay at my table. It gets down to like that sort of stuff. For me, it gets down to fit and finish. Um, if fit I can finish, keep improving, yeah. if I can keep improving my fit and finish, that but that can be a, a wormhole too. I had a, had a conversation not long back, only a couple of weeks back with Sean McIntyre again um, in relation to fit and finish. And he said, where do you want to end up? And I said, oh, I just want to keep playing with this and that and whatever. And he said, listen, um, just in relation to fit and finish, don't get to the point um, where it becomes like a point of, of diminishing returns. You have to be careful about that too because yeah. you can be, you can get so hung up on that stuff. If you're making a quality knife, stick with the quality knife, but keep trying to um, to um, improve. But as far as it goes, and I, I got exactly what he said. You can drive yourself mad in the fit yeah. and finish oh. arena. I, got, and I do. On that I note, do. I've been yeah. asked. I've been asked by some guys about. Yeah, you know, I I think I do nice fit and finish for the, for the market that I'm aiming for, for my personal satisfaction, I think I do a nice fit and finish of the knives that I'm doing. And I had someone ask me about, you know, the, the, just getting those sanding marks nice and even when you're doing a satin finish with this hand sanding. And they said, they go, you know, how do you know when it's right? And I said, I said, well, the main thing is understanding when to stop. Like you can chase, you can chase it and chase it and chase it, and you'll get to a certain point where that next time that you chase it, you're actually going to start doing more damage to the finished level that you're achieving. Mm. So, so you got to understand when when to be satisfied, which is sometimes hard when, especially when you're trying to push and get to that next level. You've got to understand when good is good, mm. and stop there. When you're oh, going having that said next that, level, having when... said that, if you're going, if you go back to what we're talking about, which is the show competitions, oh yeah, 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 I have, I have seen knives knocked out of the show for for blemishes that, frankly, ninety nine percent of the population would never even see because people, when you're judging at that level, you've got to find fault. You just have yep. to because otherwise, you can't just pick something you like. You've got to pick something that. It's good, you know. I, and that's I, I had a turning point. Down. I had a little bit of a turning point in that fit and finish side of things at a Melbourne show when I put a knife in, and you know it was it was a few years ago when the caliber of the stuff was like, you know, you you kind of in the back of your mind going, well, Peter or Sean will win this, 
but I'll stick a knife on the table anyway. And I put a knife on there and um, Alastair Phillips, who we all know is a bit of a um, obsessive compulsive about fit and finish, especially with his folders. He came up to me with my knife and he said, he goes, oh man, I was going to vote for your knife except for this. And he picked my knife up and pointed out like the fucking smallest little blemish, like you were saying, on the guard. And I was like, I don't even know if it happened between the table from my show table to the other table, but it stopped him from voting for my knife over one of the others because <laughs> the caliber in the others was, you know, perfection. Yeah. And that's, and that, that's I sort of, I initially just went, hey, you prick, you could have voted for me anyway. <laughs> and then afterwards, I sat back and went, oh, well, no. I, now I know what they're going to be really looking at. That's not going to happen on my next knife. And so the next one, you go over with a fine tooth comb. And if you go put it into the table and there's a mark on it, if you can see it, I can guarantee you a freaking judge is going to see it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's going to get dismissed absolutely. pretty bloody quickly. The thing about the thing about all that too, Kev, is... Um, yeah, how good is good? I, I I use one thing that tells me when I when it's time to stop, and that's bright sunlight. Yes. Um, there's nothing yep. like bright sunlight as opposed to what you might have in your workshop or whatever else. If you're going to see a scratch, um, you're gonna you're gonna see it in bright sunlight, and you might not see it. I I check all my stuff with a really bright torch and a really bright light and all that stuff. But before I actually sign off on it. I um I take it out into the bright daylight. That's yeah. that's what makes a difference. Um, when, I'm, when I'm doing my classes, I do the same thing. I say to the guys, look, we've got fluoros, we've got LEDs here. When you think you're finished, last thing I want you to do is take it out of the knife vice and go and stand in the sunlight and have a look at it. That and was come, the very first. They'll come back and go, oh, shit, yeah, there's a big scratch on it. The very first hammering I went to, Bruce Barnett, that was back in 2011 or 12. Bruce Barnett was down from WA. It was at Key Flutter's place. And the first thing he, that he said was, if you want to find fault in your work, and you do, uh, put in as many different styles of lighting as you can. LED, yeah. fluorescent, incandescent, sunlight. The more the merrier, you'll find it un under one light. What looks good under one light, isn't necessarily going to look, look good look good under another. Yeah, you're probably right with that. How long does this okay. go for, Connor? Oh, <laughs> well, well just... as long as you what we want. But yeah. Sounds like you're uh, you probably had enough there, Ian. No, no, no. I'm fine. I can talk bloody knives for days, but um... no. Well, we we've, we've got. How about you're going to boost we... our oh, you're going to boost our ratings, Ian. So let's keep talking. <laughs> yeah, how no. about we get Ian back? Let's get Ian back another time, but. In the meantime, let's just fire off to the crowd out there. There's still well, let's have a look at what Dan, let's have a look what Dan's just written. Ian, what's your take on what um, Dan Pedersen's just written on there? Look, absolutely, Dan, you're right. There is, but knife making for me is made up of a number of elements. Um, firstly, is the design of the knife, the function. It should it should work and do what you want it to do but if you really want to make something that stands out then fit and finishes 
how you do it. And it's so much, it, it, it's, it's the same in everything that I, I try and do in life. Um, I get into a lot of trouble because I talk about fit and finish, but you, look, you design something for a purpose. So you know yeah. that it fits the purpose that you want it for. The function, but I don't think it outweighs. I don't think there's anything that outweighs anything. It's like heat treatment. That's a critical element. They're all elements. Yeah. And if you can get them all right, then you got the absolute best knife that you can make. Um, if your design is up the shit, it doesn't matter how good your fit and finish is. Um, if the function is out of whack, it doesn't matter. You're right. But that's that's they are where all the saying element. I think that's where the saying you can't polish a turd falls over. It, it, you can in knife. Del, Del Rasso. Del Rasso always says, um, first and foremost, it's got to be a knife. First yeah. and foremost, it's got to cut. Yeah. It's got to be usable. You've got to be able to hold it Correct. comfortably in your hand. And it has to perform the duty for which it was. No matter how good you make it with fit and finish, first and foremost, it needs to be a knife. Correct. Form and function. They are yeah. critical. But... Mm-hmm. If but, you're talking about, if you're talking about an item that is pleasing to somebody else's eye, mm. I guarantee nine times out of ten, because they're not going to be able to pick it up at a show and cut with it. It has to appeal to somebody, and if it appeals to somebody, the difference is you fit and finish. Correct. You go to you go to a knife show and that stuff comes out pretty well. And and the other thing that comes out, like you said, is personal preference. You you go to like say the Sydney knife show and you have what did we have last time, Conrad, a hundred hundred makers thereabouts. Yeah, so you got a hundred tables of guys making knives. All of them are subtly different one way or another. Yeah. And you've got people buying knives off. You know, they're not all just coming and buying knives off Ian or they're not all coming and buying knives off me. Personal taste comes down to it. So, you know, there are styles that work and there are styles that don't work, but there are styles that don't work that work for some. Like, you know, someone's going to come along and see a Serbian cleaver, for example, and go, that's awesome. <laughs> I wondered when that was Whereas... going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to make the segue. <laughs> and, then, and, then there's, and then there's the people that like real knives that don't like the Serbian cleavers. <laughs> yeah, you can flame, you, you, listeners, you can flame me all you like. I don't care. Personal preference, I don't like Serbian cleavers. Get over it. So, Ian, <clears> got <throat> a question from Jimmy Barber. What was your first knife? And I'm guessing that's the not the first knife you made, but the first knife you owned. Ah, yeah, good question. And I was thinking about that because that's one of your um, – we haven't gone anywhere near the questions that you sent me, Corin. No, um, we're going to get you back, Ian. We're going to get you back. We're going to get you back. Don't worry about it. My first knife, I can tell you what my first knife was. Um, I was was still in school and I I guess I was a hunter. It was a – and I've still got it, believe it or not. Um, I could actually um, (laughs) dig it out and show it next time. I'll put it on my Instagram page, but it was was made in England. It was a – it was a folding knife. It was two. It was a two-bladed folding knife. I'm just trying to think of the name of it. I'll tell it you would, what, Ian, after the podcast or whenever, can you get a photo of that knife and put it up on the Knife Making Down Under group on Facebook? 
Yeah, sure. It was a, um, a two-blading folding knife made in Sheffield in England. Um, it was white. Um, oh, what? It was a, a rabbit, a rabbiter. Oh, crikey. It just slips my mind. So it, it'll off. come to you, right? Don't worry about it. We're going to move on. No um, Bo Smith says, Corin, can you shed some light on when the WA branch Gamaco is set to fire up? Yeah, sure, Bo. Uh, we've just got the wiring done for the um, internet and the web router. Um, it's in a it's in a one of our um, long time customers' garages, and it's in Mandura. Uh, we're just also getting in a couple of shipments of stock. That's we've really been held up. You might have noticed on steel, the big shipment of steel arrives probably tomorrow in that shipment of steel there's there's um tons and tons of steel and we'll be able to stock up the branch over there with that and also with g10 which is coming in a couple of days as well or maybe a week so we're just waiting on those big shipments obviously during covid we've been bought out of a lot of stuff and those big sea freight shipments are all coming in so we're not far off at all and you can actually talk to gamaco wa on facebook look her up her name's Danica, and um, she'll be more than happy to help you and f answer all your questions. It was now, a Joseph next Rogers. Question. Joseph, right? Yeah, great. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bunny knife. Gotcha. I knew it would come to you. <laughs> you just um, got to give these old blokes a chance, mate. <laughs> get out of it. Jamie Bishop says you can't polish a turd, but you can roll it in glitter. Well said, that, Jamie. Nice work. What's your thoughts on skeleton handle knives, Ian? Yeah, look, skeleton handle knives, that's something I've, um, I've had a bit of a play with uh, in recent times. Um, there's a, a lot of people out there that want to go lightweight. Um, there's no doubt about that, and there's, there's probably a big market. I've, um, I've made a couple of skeleton handle knives for some guys in Victoria to try, and um, I've actually got them down to 25 grams, believe it or not. These things are super lightweight. The lightest one I've made is 25 grams. It's out of a, a piece of 1095, two point something mil thick that I bought off Corrin. I didn't know what I'd do with it, but um, it actually, um, <laughs> good on you, Brad. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was perfect for what I um, I did with it, and I can tell you that little knife, um, one of them was shown before on my Instagram page. There's a little one there that's 30-something grams with the um, with the scales on it. It was green Macarta and it was on a deer, the carcass of a deer. That has actually you know, butchered five full Samba deer and the blade is two and three-quarter inches long. Um, I'm pretty happy with it. That 1095 steel, um, Corrin, is amazing. It's good stuff. It holds yeah. an amazing edge. When you get the heat treat right, and um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and oh, that's yeah. it. The fast quench <clears throat> is the key. The fast quench is the thing. Um, yeah, I've got guys raving about these little knives that I've made, and that's that's another thing that I um, I like to do with my knives is when I make a new model, uh, the first three or four that I make, I give away. I give away to guys that I know. Um, We'll test them out and we'll give me honest feedback in them on them. Um, they get free knives and I get free antler. 
It has to be be said, if you ever go to a knife camp and Ian Stewart's there, his ute's normally full of antler. So, yeah, (laughs) if anyone special. Yeah, that's how I get my antler. I have guys test my knives and, um, yeah, they give me antler and it's awesome. I think it's a great, a great, um, yeah, I'm into the barter system more than I am money. Yeah, uh, barter's good. Yeah, it's awesome. Not enough people do it, I reckon, Kev. Yeah, I know. Got to get get back into bartering. Well, I do it. Hey, Brad Stone. I do it. (laughs) No, you do, Design and function is a one-ton ute fit and finish is a ute with an esky full of beers. (laughs) So that's a a fairly fair call. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You can roll a turd in glitter, but it's still a turd. Joseph Bill, Rogers, Bill, Bill, Rogers Bill, Bill, Bunny Knife, says Jimmy Barber. That's, it. that's right. Joseph Rogers that, Bunny Knife. Yeah, guys, we're going to get Ian back on. Uh, we didn't structure it quite as, as uniformly as we normally would. We didn't get no, through we, all well, the questions we, we, we normally did, would. we did, but we just started but, talking, and the flow of it's just gone well, I reckon. Screw going great. back to formal questions. Let's just let's talking is a good thing. I think we've I covered a lot of the content. If we went back and had a look at our questions, we've, we would have – Covered a lot of our most of our answers yeah, just look, in our general conversation, which is nicer, I reckon. There's a lot of lot of stuff I could I could keep talking about with um, in relation to tips and tricks and stuff that I've learnt, and um, there'll probably be something um, that comes up in relation to that um, in the not too distant <clears throat> future. But one thing I, I'd really like to um, let people know is that. Um, when I give up my full-time job again, which is probably in the not-too-distant future, um, I'm going to have a crack at teaching knife-making. I don't know what the response will be. I do get a lot of questions about whether I teach or whether I do classes or whatever, but I'm going to provide something. Um, I'm working on it at the moment that's a little bit different to what everyone else does. Um, most people know that I just do stock removal. I don't do forging. Um, so I'm going to offer uh, stock removal, fit and finish, whatever people want to do, but it will be at my property at Tandawenglo. And, um, yeah, really different. The only thing that you've got to commit to is planting a couple of trees while you're there. Other people get you to sign the back of their door to talk about the experience. but That's Keith Flutter. Yeah, we, we, we would really love to have people there to experience what we experienced living off grid. And if you're prepared to um, crap in a composting toilet and have a shower in the river and come and join us for some some knife making and, and good camaraderie and all of this, and I'll, I'll probably have a hammer in down there to, to test it all out, Kev and Corin, if you'd be interested in coming down at some point. Um, yeah, it absolutely. For the world. To test it all out. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I'll be going. What's the secret to a mirror polish? Not have any scratches in it, I'd say, Warren. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that and you said it. <laughs> don't don't so, buff a 240 grit and think it's mirror. No, no that's it. Buff. I took um, one of my knives, right, to a toolmaker's shop uh, in and, and where they sell polishing gear for toolmakers. And I showed him my knife, proud as fucking punch, and he held it up and he said, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. He said, shit, you really do need some help. And I'm like, 
<laughs> yeah, look, I just buff the shit out of the scratches. It's and like, it I don't right. care if it's a I don't care if it's a mirror polish or a six hundred grit polish or a three twenty grit polish. Polish. You have to finish it at what you want. So if you're yeah. talking about a mirror, you have to aim for a mirror. Take it up through the grits. Take it to through your twelve hundred to your two thousand to whatever else it is. But ultimately, a mirror polish has to be exactly that. And you can't yeah. say it's a mirror polish if it's not. Um, <laughs> bartering is great. Ian, I'm a glazier. I can replace some glass for knowledge. And anyone out there, bartering the f- is great. I'm in for a class, mate. Yeah, no, that's good. Thanks, Darren. But um, there's enough gaps. There's enough gaps in your walls, mate. That even if you were missing glass, it wouldn't make much difference, would it? <laughs> well, the last two windows I put in, which is only a couple of weeks ago, I I broke one. So, Darren, I'd be really, really happy for some help. <laughs> Darren, Ian, take this one offline. <laughs> yeah, no. Worries. Stop, stop, stop it, you two. Hey, look, going back to that thing about mirror pol- polish. If you want to see what I would classify as the standard I think to go to for a mirror polish go onto Instagram and look at Warwick W-A-R-R-I-C-K underscore A-T underscore Rifle Bird Knives so Warwick at Rifle Bird Knives go and check out he always puts up his mirror polish knives next to a map or something with reference and man Warwick I don't know if you listen to the podcast. I hope you do. Shout out to you, Warwick. Um, you are what I would classify as like a benchmark for a mirror polish knife. Get on board. Absolutely. Have a look, I agree 100%. His knives are yeah. awesome. Mm. Warwick, big shout out there, mate. Uh, and and to be honest, uh, Kev, we need to get Warwick on because he's a great guy Well, I too. thought that too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Segway. I we'll never have Warwick on at some point. Before. There we go. Segway. <laughs> Warwick, if you're listening, get in touch with me in case I forget. We're going to get you on. Mert, if you're listening, that's your job. Organise the guest. We want Warwick. Warwick Edmonds when is did, his name, isn't it? When, yeah, Warwick Edmonds, that's Warwick right. Warwick Edmonds, yeah. He's a good bloke, actually. He's another one of the he's, he's another one of the guys you meet at the knife shows. Very quiet fellow, but, yeah. geez, his knives are good. Oh, beautiful, mate. Rifle he's from South knives. Australia. He's South Australia fellow as well. Up in and the he's, a, he's, a, he's a bit of a magician for finding amazing wood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Warwick so, at anyway, Rifle Bird Knives. What a great shout out that was. Mm. Yeah, so so the, the next thing will be, Ian, we've got to get you up here for a, for a barrel knife thing. We've got to go down there for a hammer in. Um, while I was thinking about that, I'm going in October. I won't be recording one day or something because I'm going down to spend um, some time with another knife maker, which will be uh, Mal and Lee Hannon. Oh yeah, Dan Yep. So got a got a um invite to go down there and fix his hardness tester. So I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> Are they in New South Wales? Uh, yeah, but they're right on the border. Yeah, yeah down right. There, I was um, going to say they're you, so you close wanna, to the border. Their number that. starts in their number starts in 03. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're okay. still in New South Wales. But yeah, he's got um. He's got a good little setup out there, and we've been I've been working on his. Uh, he we shipped him a hardness tester, which was X demo, and it got damaged in transit. So uh, I've been re- work 
working with him on how to rebuild it and we're getting some parts and stuff sorted out so we can get that sorted out for him. But, I mean, that's obviously the thing with Gamaco. Everything doesn't always go to plan, but when you're dealing with a company like ours, the whole plan is for us to have all the support we can to make sure that we... Um, that we, anything doesn't go to plan, we can fix it. I mean, you can import anything you like from anywhere in the world, but when shit hits the fan, you're on your own. And that's where we're not, you know? We're there to help. Yeah. And so, speaking of yeah. Mal, he goes under... Yeah. Mal goes under Otis Knives on Instagram. That's right. Otis Knives, that's correct. Otis yeah. Knives. O-T-I-S Knives. Check him out. They, they work yep. a, a sheep property down there, and you'll see that... Um, uh, Oh, I just had a blank on his wife's name. How rude of me. Lee. Lee. You'll see Lee. that they run a sheep farm and that Lee ends up with quite a few pet lambs. <laughs> Something I'm going to take it. that fucking... I'm going to take this thing for a oh, spin while I'm down there. That's going to be awesome. awesome. <laughs> I want to see you driving that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to see you driving that. <laughs> No, I don't think that's going to happen, actually. I don't think that's part of the bargain. I've got to fix his hardness tester and probably stay and camp down the back somewhere. But anyway, that'll be all right. I've got to come and camp down at... Got to come down and camp at Ian's place at some we'll point. Get, we'll, get Mal on here. we'll get Mal on I'd here one night. But just as you're scrolling through, I think Mal is one of the, has one of the most diverse style ranges of knives of any current maker that I've seen, I think. And he's so... Um, Oh, he's just a fucking top bloke, and and Lee. Bloke. I mean, you never see Mao without Lee, and Lee is Lee is just salt of the earth, mate. She's she's yeah. the the probably the worst sheep farmer you could imagine. Yeah, but... so <laughs> she's got a dozen <laughs> dozen pet lambs. <laughs> no, no, she's mean? got over two hundred pet lambs. That's fine. Yeah, I th so. Anyway, so yeah, they went into they went into Woolies because Lee uh, Lee was getting a bit over sending all her babies off to get eaten. So they went into went into shearing. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, right. I'm really I, looking um, forward to looking forward. Well, look, there's their wedding photo. Look at that, isn't that isn't that oh, tops? Look at that. He doesn't look any look different. At that mullet. Look at yeah, the mullet. Look at the mullet. <laughs> <laughs> Love you guys. Yeah. Right. I um. What I was going to say, if we if we do organise a, a thing down there, I'd love to do a podcast down there because we don't get the opportunity to um, to talk to people like Mike Peterson that often, and he, oh, he's, man, yeah. oh, he's an absolute legend in knife making in Australia, and it would yeah. be just so good to um, to have a trip with Mike there. I reckon. Well, Ian, what we Look, might do if one you time when we all come our down to yours out there. Sorry, sorry, go, Kev. I was going to say, if we end up going down to yours for like do a test run of your your course thing, tree plant and thing that you want to do, um, yeah. and Corin comes down, he can bring the recording gear and we'll do a, a, a not a live one, but we'll just do a recorded podcast with, um, thing, uh, I reckon that'd be bloody awesome with Mike. Yeah, look, one of his latest projects that we've got. Um, some feedback on um, through Glenn Waters over in Japan. Mike oh, yeah. made some tamahagane, and he sent three yeah. two, three kilograms of it over to a um, uh, Nakahara or Nakamura. He's a knife uh, sword maker in Japan, 
And yeah, he, how, that was that was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah, but he's just finished the sword, and it is. I've wow. I got some photos back of it. It is absolutely amazing. So that sword quality knife steel made in a forge down there. <laughs> Made by the daggiest looking bloke in blue jeans and a white beater ever. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've got to find that video, and I'm looking for it now. If someone else might find it before me, you've got to find the video of Mike Peterson making steel. And I'm pretty sure I put it it's up on, on YouTube. Making Down Under Group. Yeah, it's on, it YouTube. on YouTube. But I just did a quick the, search, couldn't find it. It's from the symposium. I think it's called yeah. Mike Peterson Man of Fire or Man, Man of, of Fire. Steel. Man of Fire, you can't find it. You but can't you just judge a book by its cover. <laughs> just, um, yeah, look, I'll, I will find it and get it back up on the group because, and if he ever offers you anything to drink or smoke, fucking <laughs> run. But, <laughs> the drink will be about 70%. I can drink. I can drink. Your eyeballs out your head. <laughs> oh, jeez. That boy is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just run, oh. just run. He's like, um, his Australian steel version of Keith Richards is into music. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a great bloke. So he's an awesome I'm just looking at, I'm just looking for that video on YouTube and I'm not... Um, oh, here we go. Man of man and fire. Yeah, you were right. I'll so bring it I'll easy. bring it back up on a share screen. So I, I could there have quite easily got a part of my head, I suppose. Oh, <laughs> here we go. No, no, it's the fire. And then after it's... this, we'll have a look at calling it quits, I think. Round it up and... Yeah. I don't know. It's the yeah. simplicity. There of man of fire. Man and fire, Mike Peterson. I'll put that up on the knife-making down under group. And um, and everyone can get on there and have a look. It's man and fire, uh, Mike Peterson. How old's that? So I'll just chuck that up on the group. Yes, oh, it's old well. enough. <laughs> and it's a great video. It's it looks just like great. younger brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah i'll just put say, that guys i've um i've had an absolute pleasure joining you guys tonight and um for me this is what knife making's all about i don't i don't subscribe to this every week but i've had an absolute ah. call and I'd, I'd um i'd love to talk about some of the other things again like we didn't well, cover half the things that you um you sent to me corin but yeah mate no, i really no, we'll, get, we'll get you on for we'll get you on for part two yeah, no worries. That'd be good. So, yeah, the 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 key thing is in that uh, we'll get you back on as 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 um as Kev said, and we're really glad you don't subscribe because that means you don't realise just how bad how things bad could it have is. gone. <laughs> yes, we're saying you do a you do wonders for our statistics, mate. <laughs> no, no, I did, I did, I did come on one night when you were talking about steel. And it was absolutely fascinating. The information was just... Oh, yeah, in the early days, that was. That's on. actually one of our best... That's still our best episode. But the problem is I, I can't do it every time, so... No, we'll go and revisit that it, at some anyway. stage too. Yeah, no, it's all good. But if you ever if, need any uh, help... Just, just anyone this comment, just one more comment. Needs any help? One more comment. One more yep. comment from Jamie, who, who a woman came... Uh, a female came within a foot of him last month as per the description earlier but anyway we won't talk about that if you can get a whiff of few sorry if you get a whiff of the fumes from mike you'll be able to smell colors and i think that sums mike up really well i love him 
but don't fucking go near him if he offers you something to drink. Sorry. Sorry, Mike. I'm not sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry. All good. <laughs> All right. If we when when we record a podcast, I think the viewers will understand because I'm sure we won't get away without having a drink with him. <laughs> no, he won't. Oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's happened message. to me twice. It's happened to me twice. And after the first time, I swore it would never happen again. But yeah. then I did it again. Yeah, a lot mm. of people do that, Corin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, All anyway. right. All right, guys. Thanks very well, much, Ian. Look, I look yeah, forward thanks, to getting Ian. you back on again, Ian. Thanks, guys. Thanks, heaps. And, um, yep, yeah, I'm in it for the long haul. And if you want to see Ian's um, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, Ian, but if you want to see Ian's tutorials and posts, they're available through most of the groups and stuff, but we've just done a little deal where Ian's uh, volunteered to donate some of his archive of posts to the Guild to use so that we'll be putting oh, yeah. up some tutorials on the Guild page. Is that? Uh, I hope that goes ahead. So um, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot there, Ian. But No, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be sending the info to you tomorrow, Corin. Yep, so we'll start loading up. You'll start seeing them on the Guild's uh, Facebook page. Awesome, so, awesome. Yeah, Let's thanks very much for your contribution, Ian. It's really, yeah, as as Bobby just said, it's inspirational. Thanks very much, mate. Cheers, mate, and thank you. And, um, yeah, catch us whenever. Yeah, yeah thanks, yeah. everyone. <laughs> See Cheers. you, guys. And look after, look, all you Melbourneites, uh, look after yourselves, guys. If there's anybody out there that's uh, that's feeling it hard, um, if there's anything, you know, there's a lot of people now that are getting into a bit of a depression, a bit of a bit of, you know, a low, a low ebb. Um, can I just, just, uh, ask that you just reach out. All right. Whether you reach out to me, you reach out to, to, to your mate, reach out to someone. All right. I'm here. I don't know you necessarily, but I'm here for you. And I'm sure anybody else out there is, is feeling the same way. Reach out. Don't be quiet about it. Um, it's hard to be locked up in your house for this period of time. It's necessary, but it's hard. And um, don't don't be doing it tough because we're all here to help. Here, here. Very good. All right. Good night, Alrighty. Good night, everyone. Take care. Cheers, everyone.